Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Since we all began staring down the double-barreled shotgun of possible food shortages and an economic recession or even a depression that President Biden alleges is because of the sanctions put on Russia for invading Ukraine, economists, financial analysts, and other money experts have been publishing their analyses of what they think is going on. My guest today is one of those experts, a banking expert to be more precise. In her article titled, quote, The Coming Global Financial Revolution, Russia is Following the American Playbook, unquote, Ellen Brown lays out the hidden history of the decisions and actions taken by America's leaders over decades that have led to these current unsettling times. It is an account that ultimately makes a clear case for the need for a new economic system for America and for the world, but not, says Brown, in the image of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Plan. Ellen Brown is the founder and chairman of the Public Banking Institute, a nonpartisan think tank devoted to the creation of publicly run banks. She is also the president of Third Millennium Press and the author of 12 books, including the well-known Web of Debt and another book titled The Public Bank Solution. She has published more than 200 articles that have appeared in the New York Times, Huffington Post, Asia Times, Counterpunch, and elsewhere. Welcome, Ellen. Thanks, Christina. Good to talk to you. What I really appreciated about your article, The Coming Global Financial Revolution, Russia is Following the American Playbook, is it provides a very clear, deep historical account of how we went from the unipolar U.S. dollars, the global reserve, to now uh, we're going into this multipolar situation. And meanwhile, you know, people people have no idea about the history and how it plugs into what's going on. People are very afraid right now. You know, price food prices are off the charts, and gas is high, and so on. And there's a connection. So I want to talk about the history and and take it up to where we are now. So could you talk about, you start in your article with the Bretton Woods in 1944 agreement, and then you take it right after that, you jump 27 years to a fateful decision that Nixon made. So talk about that. In 1944, the US dollar was made the global reserve currency along with gold. Previously, it had been gold on a, on a global, globally. Uh, domestically, Roosevelt had taken the dollar off the gold standard in 1933. In other words, you, you couldn't take your dollars to the bank and get gold for them in the U.S. But if you were a country, you could still cash in your, your global dollars for, you know, your trade dollars for gold with the, with the U.S. So because of that, and because we were, after World War II, we were the biggest gold holder in the world, uh, the gold, the dollar and gold became the reserve currency interchangeably. In other words, the dollar was gold backed and you could take your uh, globally, they could take They could cash in their dollars for gold. So back uh, then that, it was $35 for one ounce of gold, right? Yeah. So that stabilized the global economy, but there re weren't really enough. There wasn't enough gold to back all that. And uh, in the 1960s, when, uh, President Lyndon Johnson, with his um, 
uh, Great Society and the Vietnam War together, we were spending a lot of money. And um, uh, French President uh, Charles de Gaulle could, thought that we were probably going to run out of gold. And so he cashed in a good portion of France's uh, dollars for gold. And he was threatening to cash in the rest. And I think Italy did the same, cashed in theirs. And the UK was threatening to cash in theirs. And so we were clearly going to run out of gold. So uh, Richard Nixon uh, closed the gold window. And um, we then became <laughs> the, the global reserve currency backed by oil after uh nixon and um kissinger kissinger yeah kissinger made a deal with the with the opec countries before we get to that i i want to okay. talk about i don't think people realize that the vietnam war basically had bankrupted the country yeah i mean i didn't know that and what what really gets me is that Nixon had to have known that. And he was hanging on and hanging on because he wasn't going to let, and I'm just going to say it, I mean, this is a Nixon quote, I believe he called, he wasn't going to let a shit-ass country like Vietnam beat the United States. So as all of our kids were dying over there, uh, and then he was bankrupting the nation, <laughs> Uh, you know, that continues. And then Johnson wanted to continue the war too, you know? And so finally, uh, and then he has his Great Society program. And talk about the Great Society program. Where was all that money going? The Great Society was uh, social services. So just printing money, pumping out money for uh, social services, the sort of things that we need today, education and... <laughs> Uh, Social Security, et cetera. So, okay. so we were broke. And uh, so Kissinger and uh, Nixon made a deal with um, uh, the head of Saudi, Saudi Arabia, but basically representing the OPEC countries, that, uh, that the OPEC countries would sell their oil only in dollars and that they would put the dollars in Wall Street and London, City of London banks, and that, and therefore, of course, we could leverage those, and <laughs> which you know we've taken advantage of ever since. And according to um, uh, William Engdahl, who's a writer who's now in Germany, uh, he, he shows good evidence that that there was actually a secret agreement that um, Kissinger said we are going to quadruple the price of oil with this little um, Middle Eastern war they were going to <laughs> instigate. It was the Yom Kippur war, right? Yeah. Egypt and Syria attacked Israel? Yeah, Israel. So he said, basically, he said that that was set up? Engdahl? Yeah, that's what, that's what Engdahl says. And he's got quite a bit, you know, and he had some wow. other, you go to his website. Well, I put a link in the my article, but there's, you know, it links to other data supporting what uh, Engdahl said. I think it's very important uh, to name the OPEC countries because there was something else that shocked me in that part of your article. The United States 
in exchange for them going on the dollar, selling only in the dollar, buying and selling oil in, on the dollar. The United States committed to militarily protecting these countries. And we're talking about right. Algeria, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Gabon, I don't know how you say it in English, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, the Republic of the Congo, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. So they, I mean, do you think the American people knew that? Hey, we will go to war I for mean, you. I was around at the time and I certainly didn't know it, but uh, yeah. I, I was actually shocked because of course, as we all know, the history <laughs> moving forward, a lot of those countries were, guess what, attacked by the United States. So I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. So, you know, Kissinger and Nixon make this weird, I mean, I don't know, what do you think of it as a deal to, to get us out of this economic crisis that was created? Well, it obviously worked for a while. I mean, the dollar plunged right after Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, and then it, it did come back. Uh, it worked all the way until 2000 when um, um, Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein, traded his oil in euros or tried to. And you see what came at that. We had the Iraq war. and What uh, possessed him to do that, do you think? I don't actually know. He must have seen some kind of handwriting on the, because he, it was both he and, um, and Gaddafi, right? Mm -hmm. Who did that? And of course, the U.S. obviously moved against. Destroyed them both, yeah. And Gaddafi was attempting to mobilize the African countries to have a gold-backed African currency. So they would be their own independent um, money system. And that's the same thing that Russia is doing now. But of course, obviously Libya was not that powerful and we could defeat them in war, but uh, we've never taken on a country as large as, as Russia. We promise to protect these OPEC nations if they use our dollar, okay? So finally in 2000, for some reason, we don't know why, but uh, Saddam Hussein says to himself, nah, I, I don't want to do this in dollars anymore. I want to do it in euros, right? Yeah, euros were coming up. You know, they were just a relatively new currency. And maybe he saw that as the up and coming global currency. But I don't know. I'm just speculating. I can't say. Why is it that the United States at that point, I mean, this may sound like an obvious question or a newbie, uh, you know, a Rube's question, but here it is anyway. Why would the United States not want that to happen? As global reserve currency, all countries have to trade in the dollar, and they so they need dollars, and therefore they would sell their products to us in dollars, and what are they going to do with the dollars if they don't need our products? I mean, of course, they bought some of our products, but they would also use our dollars to buy, buy um, U.S. federal debt because that would pay them a little interest. You know, it's a place they could stash their dollars and earn a little interest. So that's what they did. So basically, they were funding wars that in the end <laughs> were wars against themselves. That's the insane 
part of this that I I didn't I didn't really know about. That would actually be good for us to get out of that deal. I mean, you can see it both ways. Will will it hurt the American economy? Of course, in some ways it will. But in the end, in the long run, we're better off. Well, not I mean, backing our dollars with war. The problem is, is that you've got a gigantic military-industrial complex making huge amounts of money off of the arms and the oil. So, I mean, it's interesting to me, and and I think that's one of the problems this country has had and continues to have, are these decisions that are made based on protecting those, those interests. There's another very interesting thing that happened though, in 2001 after 9-11. Before we get to that though, Israel, you know, our support for Israel could not have been sitting well with the OPEC countries, right? Do you think that's one of the reasons why uh, they would want to get out of, uh, like Saddam Hussein would want to get out of this? uh, Yeah, that's a good (laughs) It sounds likely, yeah. And Libya. I mean, I can't say. I'm sorry. It's my area of expertise is actually money and banking, not geopolitics. Well, they're 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 linked a lot, and so I'm trying to figure out. Okay, so you wrote that before the Russians, Sudan, Libya, and Egypt tried to set up a new gold-backed financial system out of outside of the IMF and World Bank. And now, how is the IMF and the World Bank, how are they viewed by these countries and by countries around uh, the world? That, that was actually Libya that tried to set up their own system. I think Sadamo is already. Oh, I thought I mean, they had. An, an African, it was an African system that uh, Gaddafi was attempting to set up. Oh, okay, okay. And he was trying to bring so in Sudan. Global, and, okay. But it would be multipolar. Yeah. Right, Sudan, Libya, and Egypt, right? They were all African countries. So in 2001, something interesting happens, though, because after 9-11, Bush brings on that, um, what what was it called again? It was where you, the United States would not allow any country to do business using dollars with any other nation that the United States considered to be an enemy or a terrorist nation around the world. Remember that? Right. I don't know a specific word for it. It was kind of a shocking thing to the world because basically it uh, undermined the sovereignty of of nations around the world. And I think what's more serious for us is it's undermining the dollar because the, sancti- the, the dollar is backed by nothing but the full faith and credit of the United States. Now, if you can't trust us to, to pay up, you know, to give you value for your dollars, what good is it? It used to be backed by gold. Now it's backed by trust. And the trust, it had been broken numerous times before, but on a smaller scale. But now with Russia, this is pretty major trust breaking and China is now leery and India is leery, you know, all these larger trading partners are now leery to um, accept the dollar because they don't know that that the dollars are going to be good for anything. We might we might uh, sanction them in the same way. The full faith and trust of the United States backing the dollar. I mean, actually, in real 
you know, in real terms, it was backed by oil, right? After gold. The petroruble will be backed by oil or gas because it's, it's the Russia's own gas, Russia's own oil, Russia's own grain, whatever, gold, whatever it is that they want to. But in our case, we were backing it with Middle Eastern oil. <laughs> I mean, of course, we had our own oil, but, but the, the reason for its strength was the fact that other countries were required to trade in oil if they, I mean, sorry, trade in dollars if they wanted to get oil. You see okay. what I mean? It was something happening on the other side of the world that arguably we should have had no control over. Let's move forward to, to now. I mean, did anything so then, else like, happen in the interim that we should know about before we get to this uh, Russia-Ukraine situation? Well, there have been various small, you know, sanctions on smaller countries. And Russia also was sanctioned in 2014. I mean, that was the start of the sanctions. But, um, you know, it's only really exploded right now. Talk about what Russia has decided to do. Originally, they said that they would sell their gas only in uh, uh, their currency, the ruble, to unfriendly countries. And those are all the countries that were blocking them from using their dollars. And uh, now they've expanded it to include oil. And they've said that they've set a floor on the gold price. That's kind of a different subject. But they've said that they will sell in rubles or gold to unfriendly countries. If you're a friendly country, you can use your own currency or you can use some other currency. So to me, that's really the way it should be. You know, you should be able to use your own currency to buy on global markets, because that's what a currency is. It's basically a promissory note saying, we acknowledge that we owe you X amount and, you know, bring it, come on in and we'll sell you our products for, the, for at that rate. But of course, many countries, it's just like anytime you go to, um, to uh, into a barter system, um, you may want my eggs, but I might not want your corn, you know, it's, <laughs> so, so you do need some sort of reserve, so, some sort of medium exchange of exchange. It wouldn't even have to necessarily be a currency. It could just be a measure of value. In other words, you know what I mean? I mean, that's if you go all the way back to ancient Samaria, <laughs> Samaria, Babylonia, that's what they did. It was just all accounting entries. Like you ran up a tab until harvest time, and then you, you paid it off with your with your harvest, you could do it like that, where you just had some sort of yardstick, a basket of commodities and currencies and things that everybody uses and figure out what your currency would buy in that basket. And then that's the value of your currency. I guess you would still be paying with your, I suppose you still need a, a reserve currency to make that work. Well, but anyway, the reserve currency could be backed by some such basket. And that is what's re what Russia and China and these countries that are negotiating a new system, that's what they're talking about, is a basket of currencies and commodities that would establish the value of, you know, you would peg your currency against that yardstick, and then you could trade currencies with each other. What happens to our economy if this all happens? 
the U.S. is capable of being fairly independent. I mean, we so we have oil and gas and we have agriculture, all that kind of stuff. But we do need to restart our manufacturing base, which we pretty much lost due to this, uh, due to the fact that we are global reserve currency because big companies could get their labor overseas. They ship their they ship their business overseas. You know, their manufacturing overseas. So. Our companies aren't really up and running like they used to be, but arguably, hopefully they could be. So it's really an opportunity to put our workers back to work and, you know, get up and running again, just as it's such an opportunity for Russia uh, to, you know, to become uh, dependent on themselves. like More self-sufficient. Sufficient. Yeah, self-sufficient. And that was the original American model, the, the American system versus the British system. If I've, I've written a lot about this before and other people have too. That's what, um, that's what it was called by Henry Clay, Senator Henry Clay in the 19th century and Henry Carey, who was Abraham Lincoln's uh, economic advisor and, the, and it stemmed from Hamilton's banks. So the pillars of the American system was were um, internal development. So you would subsidize internal development, a national bank, not a central bank hooked up to European central banks, but a, an independent national bank that would issue the national currency and the national credit. And so you would issue credit, build stuff, and the fees from the things you built would pay back the loan. So that was, it was a stable system that worked. Um, so that was the American system. The British system, or what they called the British system, was the colonial system, basically feudalism, you know, that they would capture other countries and exploit them. Well, today, we seem to be the feudal, feudal exploiters. We need to go back to the American system, which was the thing that actually made our country great, and it made us a blessing versus a rather than a curse on the rest of the world. And the other, you know, China did it, Russia did it, Japan did it, other countries picked up on that model. They saw that it worked and they did the same thing. And, but we've been invaded by this sort of financier, you know, capture, capture them in debt sort of, um, or, you know, capture other countries just because they owe us money and they owe us money in, our currency versus uh, versus working, you know, trading with them on a, a fair, fair um, level playing field. It's also um, just going in there and putting in leaders who will allow us to exploit their labor and and grab their resources for practically nothing. And and that's my question: is it sounds great that the U.S., you know, first of all, I think the transition will be quite painful uh, for the U.S. Well, economy. we're definitely going through a painful period, but it's not so much. We'll, we'll never not be a global reserve currency because the dollar is just firmly embedded in everything, you know, all these global markets. And the euro dollar is independent of our Federal Reserve that banks. Well, if I can go back to banks, not the government now creates most of our money supply. They create it when they make loans. So in Europe, European banks do that 
and they just create the money on their books and those are called euro dollars. The Fed has no control over it. There's no capital requirement or no reserve requirement rather. Um, so those are not going away. And uh, you know, in a sense that it's not a bad thing because you need an expandable currency. And that's what people don't seem to understand. You know, they think, well, we should go back to the gold standard because gold is fixed and it, you know what it's worth and all that. But there's not enough gold to conduct all the trade that needs to happen in the world. And if you just go from um, your, if you just count your finished product, you actually need many times more gold than that because you've got to pay all these different, you know, at all these different stages and they pay all their people, et cetera. I mean, it's just a huge network of payments. And so it is better to have it be an expandable accounting system type currency. Oh, and, and that's based on your commodity, the value of your commodities? Is that is that how that works? What what would your currency be based on? Well, that's what I say. If you if you had this measuring stick, which is what they're talking about, the Asian, the new this new year Asian monetary system that um, Sergey Glaziev is spearheading. I you know, I mean they were, they've been working on that for years. It's some sort of uh, Eurasian system, but they would, they, it would be a basket of currencies and commodities, and that would be the measure for the value of your currency. So anyway, you've got all these euro dollars that are backing global trade. You know, they call it euro, even if it's not in Europe. You know, it's dollars outside the American system are called euro dollars, and they're not created by us. They're created externally, and they're really just accounting entries. But that, you know, that does explain why people are always asking, why did the Fed bail out these foreign banks, you know, in 2008, 2009, during that crisis, or after 2010, whenever it was that they did those bailouts? Well, it's because they had swap line, you know, contractual swap lines with those countries. What does that and mean? Well, it means that we agreed that if they want dollars, you know, like physical dollars, we'll give it to them. And so the system works as long as you're dealing on a, um, on a accounting a level. virtual yeah. level yeah you can do that but if if suddenly people are nervous and they want their money and they actually want physical dollars that the euro dollar system can't cough up can't print dollars you know that would be counterfeiting so they've got to go to the fed to get their physical dollars but the dollar is the exchange you know, the global exchange currency in general. And it would be very difficult to switch over to the yuan, for instance, because they've got capital controls. They're, it's not an open currency. It's not easy to get. How are you going to earn your yuan? <laughs> so for the time, you know, for a long time, at least, and I suspect forever, it'll just be a multi-polar system. In other words, you can do that or you can do this, but the dollar is still going to be, um, you know, it's not going away and it's certainly not going to, people think it's going to hyperinflate or going to collapse. It, it looks to me like we're not heading for hyperinflation, we're heading for a depression. And it wasn't, or, you know, at least recession. And it wasn't uh, the fault of the Fed. It wasn't the Fed printing the money. It was the Euro dollar that flooded the global economy with, dollars 
the, the euro dollar system and we don't have any control over that. Why so. did they flood? How, for what reason did they flood the market like that? Well, on that on that upper level, when you're dealing in things like in the virtual level, this is this yeah. is what's weirding me out is how so much money is actually just, you know, exactly. I it's agree. virtual, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, my God. This is so strange. Yeah, so, so if they're doing stuff like derivatives or any form of gambling, you know, they're buying assets and making a profit. So they're they buy it and sell it and keep the spread. I mean, clearly not a thing we want to encourage. But why but can't the is, rest of us do that? Why can't the rest of us play in this virtual world, pretend we have all this money and, and gamble with it? Why well, are only the banks you know, allowed to do that? Only banks are allowed. And why? I'm, I'm chairman of the Public Banking Institute, and that's one of our goals is to get public banks out there that can do the same thing for the people. In other words, we want to generate credit that we can use for infrastructure that the people need, things that the people need, uh, you know, things that the local government would use. What does it, it take? What does it take to set up a public bank? I'm very oh, interested that, now. I'll tell you. Subject, but, yeah, well, well, I don't know because it's the same thing that it takes for a private bank. You need capitalization. You need it used to be that you needed reserves, but you know the Federal Reserve has now also eliminated the reserve requirement. In Europe, they didn't have a reserve requirement for a long time, but now we don't either. Banks don't have to have any money to issue money as loans on their books. They don't have to have any liquidity. And where do they get, you know, if somebody wants to cash out, it's the same problem. If somebody wants to pull their dollars out, then the bank does have to come up with the money. Or even just if you, one bank, you write a check on your account. Say, let's say you take out a mortgage for $500,000. You write a check. So the bank just writes that into your account, $500,000 on one side of its books as a liability to itself because that's your checking account. And then on the other side, they write it as an asset to themselves because um, you have agreed, you've signed I have a to contract. Pay it. Yeah. You're going to pay it back over time. Yeah. Plus, interest. but I have to pay it with real stuff that I make with real money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that, even that real money probably came from, you know, a, a bank probably just created it. Like another bank could do the same thing. And they can basically swap checks and they both have 500,000 coming in, 500,000 going out, you know, their books balance. It looks like it's good. But when you, so when you write your check, your $500,000 check to another bank, to the, you know, your seller in another bank, the first bank has to come up with 500,000 somehow, but they don't have to have the money to start with when they make the loan. And they can come up with the money, um, I mean, ideally, of course, it's with their deposits, but it's not your deposit. It's somebody else's deposit. Right. That, you know, it's just the liquidity they have in the bank. But if they don't have the liquidity, they can uh, go to the repo market, which is uh, overnight loans or short-term loans, like two weeks or whatever, but they can just keep rolling it over and over and over. And that's why you hear about these periodic repo crises, like when re repo went to 10% in September 2019. I don't know if you remember that, but it was no, considered a big deal. And nobody knew why, you know, what happened, why things went wrong. But but it was because J.P. Morgan and some other, 
big financiers didn't they didn't want to put their money in repo they didn't want to repo their money with the european banks which were putting out shoddy collateral for long story but anyway so the you know the repo market is certainly not you can't do a 32 loan 30 year loan in the repo market you've got to be able to count on it being there day after day or week after week or whatever how long your your short term loan is and if it's not, you're screwed and you've got to pay whatever interest rate they want to charge. The other, it used to be that banks would borrow from each other and that was called the Fed funds market. And that's where, um, so banks would, I mean, that's that's what the Fed has control over, the, the interest rate. So currently that interest rate is 0.5% and it was 0.25%. So it's almost for almost free. Almost free. You, know, you yeah. can almost get free money from the other banks. But again, the other banks in 2008-2009 they were became afraid of putting their money up because after Lehman Brothers crash, crash etc they were they didn't trust the other banks and that's why the repo market became the dominant thing because when you repo, you put up something for security. And so if you can't, if, you know, if you don't get your money back, you can then take that security and cash it in and get that money back. And what was considered pristine collateral is federal securities. Well, now we see that <laughs> they're not as pristine as. So if you have a public banking system, you know, if, if, if for example, every state had its own public bank, uh, or even the country had its own public bank. Would you need the Federal Reserve? Yes. Well, you still need a source. You, you want to be able to, you need that backstop. You need to, um, the, okay, well, the, what banks trade in is bank reserves, not dollars. So okay. bank reserves are created originally by the Federal Reserve, and it's it's like just a clearinghouse where, you have some bank reserves and then you move it over to the other bank. It's just sort of a numbers game to keep track of, you know, so that, you know, it's, it's the clearing house, but it's not the only clearing house. There are also private clearing houses. There are private ways of. It, it just seems like the people get screwed all the time economically when things are happening in the banking system, in the global economic system. I mean, here we are, this, this situation in Russia is directly having a direct impact on our economy, which is directly impacting, you know, every individual in this country because they have to pay more for their groceries, et cetera, et cetera. I might interject. It's, it was the, we had inflation long before Russia did. I mean, I've heard it argued that they had to have a war to cover up the fact that they had screwed up the economy already. I mean, we had inflation because of the lockdowns. And yes, I, I have heard that too, that COVID caused COVID. But I mean, think about that for a minute, and the supply Alan. chain problems that, you know, which are also regulatory problems. So government screwed up and to cover the way they screwed up <laughs> i mean they created we're not a war. Russia, but it's not really russia that's responsible for i mean the, it is this last leg of but it wasn't really russia that triggered the inflation it was i mean uh, it, it almost feels like vietnam deja vu all over again because 
you know, even though they say that we're not involved in this war, obviously we're, we're putting a lot of money into this war. We're sending over armaments. Uh, I'm sure there are advisors on the ground in Ukraine. I'm sure, you know, we, we, we are very much involved with this war as are the other NATO, NATO countries, you know? I mean, this is, and so I, I, just, I just feel, I can't articulate it. And that's why I'm trying to talk to money people like you because I'm not money, I'm not savvy about economics. But I just feel like we're all getting screwed to protect people from the mistakes, protect our political leaders from the mistakes that they have made. And we're being told, we're being told, given this narrative, as you just said, you know, oh yes, all this, you know, the, the, the empty shelves are as a result because of this war going on. And I'm just like, what is going on and what is going to happen to Actually, us? Actually, the empty shelves are because of the Green New Deal and this whole, uh, you know, we don't have oil because we shut down the oil pipeline. And do you know they're actually piping carbon dioxide from uh, Louisiana to North Dakota in a pipeline that's taking, you know, that's taking a lot of farmland out of commission. Uh, there's this principle of 30 by 30 by 2030, 30% of global land and oceans are supposed to be off the market, supposedly to preserve the earth, but you're not, <laughs> I mean, we are part of the earth, you know, we're part of the global ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's certainly hurting us. So a lot of the farmers, farmland is being taken off the mark, you know, out of commission. And that is a government policy, supposedly because carbon dioxide, well, I shouldn't even get into that, but- No, I, I want you to, because I'm okay. trying to think, I feel like, I feel like we're being driven. Okay, go ahead. It's water vapor. Water vapor is what heats the earth and carbon dioxide Plants need carbon dioxide. They thrive, and you know, you cut off the carbon dioxide, and you you starve the plants. It's just it's counterintuitive, even the carbon. You know that we should be have this war on carbon dioxide, but that's you know that's where I mean clearly we would it would like be nice to get rid of pollution and stuff, but it, there's no way we're going to switch over to everyone driving an electric car. First of all, I I saw where new new I think new cars in general are with electric cars are like $56,000 now. Um, there's most people, you know, can't afford that. First of all, we don't have, we've now shot ourselves in the foot for things like for, for all those rare earth minerals that you need to make these batteries. The batteries themselves are highly toxic. I mean, they're certainly, they're more toxic than the, than the things we're supposedly taking out of the atmosphere and to do acres and acres of solar solar farms is taking regular you know farmland out of commission it's not attractive and it's there's no way those solar panels themselves are toxic or they use toxic stuff or they're mining that stuff is you know uses child labor it's like totally things we don't approve of so we're getting into doing stuff that we, the people, 
don't approve of in order to do avoid doing things that we thought we didn't approve of. In other words, it's another one of these sort of propaganda things. Well, I, I just feel though, all that having been said, that this country is being third worldized. I don't know how else to put it. Oh yeah, no, I agree. And th there's that whole World Economic Forum Great Reset issue. Yes. And in fact, that? It, it, you know, to just, I know we're almost, just to throw another monkey wrench in the work. So I've been reading that um, the Federal Reserve is actually on our side in that. Like the, the Fed is actually, or Jerome Powell is actually standing up to Christine Lagarde and saying, no, we're not going along with that. Um, and in various ways, we have done things that separate us you know that are actually going to bring down the world economic forum or make it so that their their um their system is not going to work what now, things are those last summer uh or the our federal reserve raised the interest rate on our repo they they are a counterparty in the repo market you know they're now putting a floor in the repo market so they set it at zero point Five, which was in Europe, it was 0.25. So here it was raised to 0.5. Well, which is, doesn't sound like a big deal, but that meant all these dollars that were in Europe came flooding back to the into the U.S. market because they get a little better interest rate. So, so in that sense, starving Europe of of dollars. But it's you know it's not Europe like the Europeans. It's Europe that those heady um, markets where, you know, the, you know, money making money, that area. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so, so how does one, and Christine Lagarde said that, you know, you have to tell your banks that they can't make loans for oil or this or that. And Jerome Powell said, well, he said, uh, we don't think that's our, area you know where that that's fiscal policy and, and we're monetary policy so we, we can't really do that and she got all upset she said no you have to do it but the thing is once you start telling the banks that they can't do oil then that means you could tell the banks what they can lend money for which you know which takes the, that power away from the people it's it's our money we should be able to use it for, you know, whatever. I mean, the concern, everybody's concern is that you'll be turned off for being a political dissident in some way, you know, maybe yeah. against vaccines or something like that. And which we just saw in Canada, you know, where they could actually turn. With the truckers. Yeah. Stuff. And the GoFundMe money. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that opened everybody's eyes to the central, the digital uh, central banking system. Yeah. Well, and I've actually written favorably on CBDC. I mean, all these things are tools that could be used for good, they could be used for bad, right. but you don't want them to be out there if there's the potential for them to be used for bad. I mean, the first thing we obviously have to do is to get control of our political system, but how do you do that? Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, is our, our, our politicians really working for us? Even if they think they're working for us when they go up there, you know, they're told, you're going to vote like this and or else you don't get the money to you know get reelected whatever i mean the whole system who is... are they working for ellen yeah well 
It's, I would guess. It's, it's, it's about the money. So you must have an idea. Well, <clears throat> I would call it the British system. I mean, it's that same thing that we've been infiltrated with ever, you know, ever since when they lost us as a physical colony, they, they, I don't mean British like the British people, because, you know, we all know British people that we like very much, et cetera. It's not the people, but the, well, it's, you could say the British bankers, but then yes. I'm sure they're perfectly nice British bankers out there too. It's that system that, um, well, isn't that a system that is set up by the oligarchs and the royals and the, you know. Yeah, well, you can trace it back to, I know Tom Luanga calls it old European money, and that's what's behind the World Economic Forum, and they want to yep. keep their money. Or you could look at BlackRock and Vanguard. Vanguard is owned by some big families that, you know, are unnamed. They don't say who they are, but we can guess. You can guess that those families that have been in control of banks for the last 300 years and right. have been collecting interest on it are very wealthy by now. They're multi, multi trillions of dollars. And then BlackRock itself, you know, it's basically when they say you will own nothing and be happy, who will own it? We already know BlackRock already, already virtually owns everything or controls everything. So, yeah, there's yeah. that whole network and they are. Um, Larry Fink, who is um, president or CEO of BlackRock, is also on the board of the World Economic Forum. So, you know, it's... <laughs> How do we get rid of their stranglehold? Is there is there a f financial way to do that? It's looking like, that's what I'm saying, that this... this wrench that Russia has, Russia and in uh, China and India, you know, if they form their own uh, alternate global, global reserve currency, that will throw a wrench, a wrench in the gears. And uh, so that's what I'm saying. In the long run, that's a good thing because we do need to bring down the current system. I mean, we need to level the playing field and start over, which is exactly what the great reset is. We need a reset, but we don't want their reset. We need it reset in a way that serves the people. And how do we do that? Very good question. And that's what we all are working on is trying to formulate a system that doesn't have loopholes in it. I mean, arguably maybe some form of cryptocurrency. I don't think Bitcoin actually works as a, you know, you can't, it's too, Bitcoin is like gold. It's there's not enough of it to um, to have an expandable economy that can expand so that the economy itself can grow and so that you can fund all those. But if it's virtual, things. why can't you just create more? Well, but then you need some limits on it, or else you're going to have uh, inflation or hyperinflation. Right. So right. it is a bit tricky, but but I've heard that there's the original Bitcoin supposedly. I don't know. This is not my again. I'm not. I'm not a crypto person, but uh, apparently there's one called um, BSV, which was which is expandable and could work, and it was the original Bitcoin. So I've been told. Anyway, they, so people are working on that, that there must be a way to set up a global system that is a, both transparent and 
protecting your privacy, if you know what I mean, transparent yeah. enough that you can see what's going on, but not so transparent that they can cut you off for that, that they could see your your Gmail along with <laughs> along with your bank account. But you know, you know what this means, though. What you're saying is that they really, and these are people with enormous resources. They really have to bring Russia down by hook or by crook, even if it means blowing up the whole world. It seems like because this is like this is the the line in the sand. Yeah, no, I've seen different people say that, yeah. And if that's the case, what comes after? I saw a thing, it was a, an interview of a man in 2010 talking about a meeting. He was a banker, a London, city of London banker, but he was also a Mason and he'd been invited to this meeting and he thought that it was a more high level meeting that then he, you know, he thought he was invited by accident. And they were talking about that they were behind schedule, that um, that they were they were supposed to reduce the population by 80%. First they were first China would catch a cold. That's why this struck me because this was 20, 2005 and the interview was in 2010, uh, talking about China catching a cold and then uh, you know it would be a virus that would Go globally, and and then uh, they would then Israel and Iran were supposed to get into a minor nuclear war, and the U.S. would come in on the side of Israel, and uh, China would come in on the side of Iran. Uh, this is on uh, Project uh, Planet uh, Planet Camelot Project Camelot. <laughs> anyway, and um, and. And so we would have a global war and it was supposed to, uh, they were planning on eliminating 80% of the population because some major astrological, astronomical event was in the future that we, the people weren't being told about, but they, the, the wealthy, you know, the, the elite. The cognoscenti, yeah. Sorry? The cognoscenti. <laughs> yeah, they would go underground. They had, you know, they had all these bun underground bunkers prepared. And then when they came back out, they didn't want to have to deal with a lot of starving hordes. So that's why they wanted a minor population. And they would have, of course, their robotic um, system set up. So, I mean, they may be pushing for a global nuclear war, and that is definitely the big threat or a big threat. I find that very interesting because, you know, it's just like when, when I see, for example, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the arms, nuclear arms build up in general, and then countries next to each other getting their nuclear uh, warheads and so on. And I just think to myself, I, I don't get it, you know, because if, if, you, if you attack another country, uh, with nuclear weapons, you might as well just stick that weapon in your left ear. The wind blows, the water flows, everything's going to come back to your country too. I mean, the immediate disaster next door or wherever is, is going to be great. But in the end, you've, you, you're polluting the entire planet. So I, I just, I've never understood the logic of that. I mean, I understand now there are like suitcase nukes or limited, but it's still, it's still, 
it's still going to affect everybody. I, I just don't get it. I don't mm -hmm. understand it. And for what? For what? It's like, how much can you, how, how much can you own and control and whatever? I guess after that, then they're going to have to move into outer space and try. I, I don't get it. Yeah, well, it used to be that whole mutually assured destruction thing that you had them so that your neighbor knew that you had them so your neighbor wouldn't do it because you would retaliate. But uh, as you say, it's a very dangerous situation. Not everybody believes in that. They may want nuclear uh, mutual destruction. Well, I, I mean, I just... I, I don't know that part I don't get so I just want to go back to one thing that you were saying that it, it, it would be great if the United States. Um, this will actually could actually be good for the United States, because then the United States would work more on being self sufficient on rebuilding its manufacturing base, et cetera, et cetera. But but what about the component of labor and so because it, it seems to me that the US economy and the economies of many of these Western nations are so dependent on the slave labor. And, and how are you gonna, how are you gonna be a viable, have a viable manufacturing base if you're having to pay your workers so much more? How does that work? Well, we could of course do just like, um, like the American colony or the, you know, the early U.S., not colonists, but when we were no longer a colony and had our own bank and issued credit, you build it with credit. So yes, prices would go up, but you, people would have more money. You know, you pay your laborers more, they could afford, they could afford higher prices and um, you would put more money out there. So the money would be available to pay the prices on these things. Basically, what you're saying is that the more money that is in circulation because people are getting paid a decent wage, so the, they'll have more money to circulate and the more money that circulates uh, throughout the economy, the healthier the economy. Yeah, but well, it's, so that's demand. But if you have demand go up without supply, you're gonna have inflated prices. Right. But if, if that demand is going into producing stuff, in other words, you're paying those people to actually make stuff and not to speculate in the stock market or whatever, then or to to um, roll over their you know flip houses or something like that. If they're actually producing things, you will have supply go up with demand, and you know supposedly the money will be there. It you know it'll be affordable. It'll balance out. The other thing I think that is very important is somehow the taxation system has to be fixed so that uh, the wealthy pay their share. And, and also this whole thing with corporations being entities unto themselves, I think is another thing that has really affected the economy. Has it not in terms of the general wealth of everybody? I'm not, I'm not sure what you're saying. What I'm saying is if if it were if if we had a system where it were one one man one vote and corporate corporations uh, could not be considered uh, individuals, okay, or whatever. I mean, they get all these tax breaks and so on and so forth. 
So I just feel like I see it to be incorporations as people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. That's not good. Yeah. But I have seen uh, proposals that if the shareholders, I mean, sorry, if the employees actually own the companies, that would that would be good. Listen, I want to thank you for coming on. I think that article is is fascinating and a really good primer for people to understand some of the crazy decisions and the, <laughs> the crazy system that we're in. And, uh, you know, a lot to think about to try and figure our way out of this in a way that all of us come out ahead in some way. Thank you so much, Alan, for coming on. Okay, thank you, Christina.